1: The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts.
0: Five. The virus is going to do what the virus is going to do. We are not saving lives. We are
1: postponing deaths. Four. I think politicians ought to be treating with a little bit more respect than treating them like insolent children.
2: I told them what I thought in no uncertain terms and then as I walked out of Downing Street I sat in a cafe and wrote a column telling Boris that he had to get back his mojo. Two.
1: It's not about information gathering anymore. It's all about scoring
2: points. 1 We have liftoff. And welcome again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. And guess what, fellow Planet Normal citizens? This is a big moment, because this is our 21st blast-off. Our 21st trip to Planet Normal, bringing you news and views from beyond the bubble. And thank heavens we launched back in May, and made it through podcasting adolescence into adulthood. Because so many of you now email us at planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk leaving comments on the Telegraph website, Apple iTunes reviews and elsewhere, saying that we are your rocket of right thinking, your capsule of common sense, and that you value our weekly trips to planet normal as we reflect on the madness of planet Earth. And this week, it seems the world really has gone mad, Alison. Lockdown is back, as you rightly predicted. And as you wrote in your weekly Telegraph column, it's all ended in tears.
0: Oh, goodness, Liam. So you'll be familiar with the great poem of Alfred Lord Tennyson, Tears, Idle Tears, I Know Not What They Mean. And there are people throughout the bars of the North East quoting Alfred Lord Tennyson this week. So I can hear them. Let me put
2: my head out the window.
0: (laughs) I think to do... Full justice to what's been going on this week. You do you remember that Spirograph game we had when we were kids with all the the sort of cogs and the they came up with all that sort of whizzy graphs I and did. interconnecting lines. So just to try and simplify, it was we've a poor got,
2: man's etch a sketch.
0: It was yeah. Well, we you yeah, know I couldn't. We aspired to et- et- etch a sketch. So Boris finally looks like he decided to disagree with SAGE, the committee of scientists who seem to have been running the pandemic for us. SAGE, about three weeks ago, seems to have recommended the return of a full national lockdown of the sort we saw in March on a temporary basis to halt the spread of the virus. And this is being known as the circuit breaker. But Boris has preferred to go for the three tier option, and that's different areas of the country according to how much infection they've got. So, tier one is medium, tier two is very scary, and tier three is basically, you know, Armageddon. And at the moment, it's only Liverpool, city of Liverpool, which is under the strictest tier. But what we've also seen because of this now is. So far through the pandemic, Sir Keir Starmer's approach for Labour has been we resolutely support the Prime Minister and the government during this time of national crisis. You know, we're being all responsible, but he's just been waiting for the moment to shaft the government and Boris, and he's made his move now by calling for a circuit breaker lockdown over half term. So I was just going to say that we've got some clear blue water between the parties. That's not quite true, Liam. It's shark-infested, blood-strafed water now, And just to add to the fun, we've got Labour mayors up north like Andy Burnham who are opposed on economic grounds to the restrictions. So we've had Sir Keir Starmer now calling for tougher restrictions when he's been advising his MPs to vote against the government's tougher restrictions. And also we have Tory backbenchers, about 40 or 50 of them. Totally up in arms, and rightly so, and wondering what's going to become of the economy if we continue with our monomaniacal—did I say that right? Monomaniacal focus on COVID at the expense of all the other problems that are coming hurtling towards us. So that's my that's my brief summary of the turbulence of the week.
2: So Starmer, it seems to me, has finally made a decision and come down on one side, but it's the wrong side, certainly in my view. And meanwhile, it is becoming more polarised across the House of Commons. Politics is kicking in big time. We had a resignation this week, didn't we, from a, a young yes. Tory MP, Chris Green. He was a PPS, so that's the sort of the first rung of being in government, like a parliamentary private secretary, not quite a minister, but on the way, saying that he disagrees with this lockdown on economic grounds. And throughout this, since May, since we began, we're not going to shy away from pointing out the economic costs of all this. If you point out the economic costs of it, it doesn't make you a bad person because economic downturns kill people too. And again, something that you've been saying, and I think we both put our finger on this really early, there's a big suspicion out there now among ordinary folk, planet normal denizens, if you like, that a lot of the people that are making decisions about lockdown, they're either sort of ministers who are minted, Mm. Uh, or they're academics who are living in a bubble. Uh, And in all cases, they're paid by the public sector. They don't have to worry about their mortgages. They don't have businesses that are going to collapse after years and years of building them. Mm. They don't have that financial insecurity now that so many people are feeling with this lockdown. And I think in the end, what Keir Starmer's done, he knows that Boris is so kind of mesmerised by these scientists. He knows that Boris, having gone down this lockdown route, now can't retreat from it and say maybe it's the wrong way, given the economic damage that's already been done, given the lives that have been lost from the lockdown, if you like, given the lack of non-COVID treatments in the NHS, that he can't get a U-turn in. And I think what Starmer has done very cynically, he's called for this full lockdown during half term, this so-called circuit breaker, Because he knows Boris is going to do it anyway. That's the fear. So we're going to get in a Dutch auction of them trying to out-lockdown each other when so much of the public is saying, no, no, you should be going in completely the other direction.
0: Well, it's also in the week, isn't it, when the World Health Organisation finally said lockdown doesn't work. It's a panic measure only to be used to give your health service time to get in shape and it makes the poor even poorer. I disagree with you slightly, Liam, because I think that the government has been, you know, it's been saying it's been following the science, but also I think it's been following the opinion polls. And the latest YouGov poll suggests that a significant proportion, that's 40% of the British public, think that COVID restrictions should go even further than the three-tier system unveiled by Boris Johnson. And about 19% think that they're about right. And I think it's about 15% think that they go too far. So we're still seeing quite a substantial number of British people thinking that we do want these lockdowns and they work. But what occurs to me when I see these polls, which I do find quite shocking, is that they never, ever present a question which presents the other side of the argument. So just to take two examples, so we know obviously all the personal catastrophes that people are sending in to us, but this week Heathrow dropped out of Europe's top 10 busiest airports, okay? It's been overtaken by Amsterdam, Frankfurt and Russian and Turkish airports. That might not mean a lot to Joe Public, but you're an economist. You know that's a very lot of jobs. And Edinburgh University came out with a terrific survey which suggested that the use of lockdown as a blunt instrument and social distancing could cost between 149,000 and 178,000 lives over the course of the pandemic because of preventing herd immunity, which we've talked a lot about because of Professor Sunetra Gupta and the Great Barrington Declaration. So what I'm thinking when I look at these polls is people have been frightened and they haven't been told, yes, over here, there's what you think is safety. It's not safety. You can stay in a cupboard for three months, but when you come out of the cupboard, you're still going to get the virus. This is what people don't understand, Liam. The virus is going to do what the virus is going to do. We are not saving lives. We are postponing deaths. And that is the bleak truth that underlines all of this. And our politicians, most of them, are disgracefully looking away from the universal facts about viruses and pandemics that have applied for tens of thousands of years.
2: You know, that was that was definitely a Velma moment there. You outdid me <laughs> once again with your research So, Daphne, be damned, you are now officially Velma for the next few weeks. On these polls, I agree with you in the sense that that's what the headlines say. But if you drill down to them, again, as you indicated, the questions are really, really leading. And there's a lot of frightened people out there. And given the relentless drumbeat of doom that people are watching on the Tea Time News every evening, it's amazing that actually a majority of people either think we need less lockdown or they don't know. It's amazing that it's only 40 or 45% of people who actually back what the government's doing. And this is only really going in one direction as more and more credible scientists challenge this lockdown. As you say, it's not just that Edinburgh University survey. It's the Great Barrington Declaration, which we've highlighted for a long time now on Planet Normal. We wrote about it in our column on Monday, didn't we, in the Telegraph Half yes, Planet we did. Normal column. And what's really interesting now is you know the language against the Great Barrington Declaration people that so that's Sinetra Gupta, two other world leading epidemiologists. She of course is an Oxford epidemiologist, and thousands of other medics have now signed that declaration. It's named after the Massachusetts town where it was written by Sinetra and her colleagues. And hundreds of thousands of members of the public have now signed That declaration. And you've had all kinds of lockdown fanatics trying to discredit the declaration by saying, oh, look, somebody's signed this declaration and they're called Johnny Banana or whatever it is. Mm. Yeah, it's really hard to do a global petition uh, and to make sure Mm. all the checks and balances are there. But the numbers of people that are signing and the, the number of medics who are signing and the credibility of the people at the top, not just the top three, but the many co-signatures who are named before the declaration was actually mm. launched. is very, very impressive. And Shanetra Gupta is now, you know, she's becoming the kind of warrior medic that we always knew that she was, despite the very dignified and quiet way in which she conducted her interview with you. Because yesterday in Parliament, Matt Hancock, our health secretary, he said at the dispatch box... The substance of the Great Barrington Declaration was, quote, emphatically non-true. Many diseases never reach herd immunity, including measles, malaria, AIDS and flu, he said. Herd immunity is a flawed goal, even if we could get it. So Gupta's come out fighting and in an article that came out this morning on a, on a website called Unheard, and we should hat tip to Unheard because they've been doing very interesting work. Mm. Orthogonal to the orthodoxy. Orthogonal if you like, to the orthodoxy. As planet, as, yeah. as Planet Normal has. And she's come out fighting in an article on Heard. In a nutshell, the development of immunity through natural infections, she says, Grypta, is a common feature of many pathogens, and it's reasonable to assume that COVID nineteen does not have any tricks up its sleeve to prevent this from happening. And if it did, she says, one of the world's leading epidemiologists, that would anyway pose a very serious problem for the development of a vaccine. I think what we've seen over the last week, and I think we're going to see it more and more as these economic restrictions really bind Mm. and businesses that thought they could survive that had got off their knees as the lockdown Ease during July, August and September and have been flattened anew as these restrictions come in. I think we're going to get an awful lot more people and I'm seeing it on Facebook, I'm seeing it even on Twitter, which is a kind of echo chamber of lockdown fanatics most of the time. I think we're going to get more and more people saying, you know, maybe we should be going for herd immunity. Maybe we should be going for this age-stratified approach which the Great Barrington Declaration advocates of helping older people to shield if they want to, if they want to, while everyone else gets on with their lives, given that, as we've pointed out so many times, the vast, vast majority of people who die from this disease are 70 plus or 75 plus with pre-existing comorbidities that would have killed them anyway.
0: I said in my column today, Liam, that With the uh, deep breath, 12.6 billion quid that... Dido, Queen of Carnage, Harding, and her assorted lackeys have managed to spend on the test track, trace, go missing. We've lost a few down the sofa. Uh, That that could have put most of the vulnerable population in the Bahamas until May to uh, keep them out of the way. Can we just pause for a minute to, to contemplate what Matt Hancock said at the dispatch box? Because that was such an astonishing. Every week he says something. He's basically threatened cancer patients with no treatment unless we behave ourselves. And this week, he's running down two or three of the world's great epidemiologists. And coming back to that great Barrington declaration that you've mentioned, Liam, Jaya Bhattacharya, who is one of the signatories with Shinetra Gupta, an amazingly eminent man, he said this week that, it's lockdown that's the aberration. This would never be something you would do during a pandemic. It's lockdown that is the aberration and is being presented as normal. And talking again about the fear, can we also pause now? Because we're coming up to the, um, the one-month anniversary of the Sir Patrick Balance graph of doom. Dun, dun, dun. Exactly. Just before the imposition of the pub curfews and rules on mask wearing. Planet Normal listeners will remember that Chief Medical Officer Chris Whitty and the Chief Scientific Advisor Sir Patrick Vallance showed Britain a graph which wasn't a prediction. As they say, it was a projection that we could have 50,000 new daily infections by mid-October. Now, we're just about reaching mid-October, Liam, and over the past week, the rate of infections has averaged just 14,000. So if you think about that, think about the gap between what they were threatening us with to get us to comply, how it's actually turned out. And you might think that there would be a bit of an apology or, oh, I'm sorry, we we miscalculated. But no, they plough on now with a new set of warnings about how many lives we could save if we go into lockdown again. Even though, as I've said before, all the evidence is that lockdown doesn't save lives. And coming back to our poor publicans on Mersey side, there is very little evidence that hospitality contributes very much to COVID infections at all. I think the figure was four percent. But there is good news, which the government and everyone else is reluctant to give us. But patients now Going into intensive care with COVID, the chances of their surviving have gone up to 80%. Even for the very elderly, COVID is no longer a death sentence. And this is my favourite stat of the week, okay?
2: No. Um, we'll talk about that later. <laughs> yeah, we will. There's a debate about that even. There's political camps even on our Scooby impressions, but carry very,
0: ve- Very, very bitter tribal debates about, our, <laughs> about your Scooby impersonation. So <laughs> let's just have this as our favourite stat of the week. Six in every seven over 90-year-old who has been in intensive care with COVID has survived, Liam. This is not a death sentence for people, and we are treating it as though it is
2: bubonic plague. That's obviously great news. It's also peak Velma. I mean, Velma's gone out of the mystery machine <laughs> and basically she's bought an articulated lorry and she's got her own show. God, Daphne, Shaggy, Fred, Scoop, they've all been thrown thrown by the wayside as she as she motors on. Alison, they're very, very interesting numbers. And uh, joking aside, I know you've really, you know, you, you are not a kind of statistician by temperament or background, <laughs> but you have worked so... So hard to drill down into the data over recent months since we started Planet Normal, really. And I think it's brought an enormous amount to the podcast.
0: What's lovely is having listeners saying that they are using the stats that we are able to truffle up and they're sharing them with other people who are worried or fearful. And they said it's having a really great effect. So the more of the of the beneficial statistics we can spread, you know, we can we got to fight back against all the all the meaningless fear.
2: The stats are there. I mean, people can go on the ONS website, the Office for National Statistics. All the stats are there. Their website, you know, I've had criticism about the ONS over the years, their inflation numbers and so on. But on this, I think they are putting the data up there it's clear for you to see you can click on the graphs you can have a look it's just that data is not breaking through via the politicians and our colleagues uh, in the media and getting into the public consciousness and forming part of the national and political debate and thus driving actual policy outcomes we should be screaming from the rooftops about the huge gap now between cases and deaths mm. and hospitalizations we should be screaming from the rooftops the fact that cases are rising because we're doing so many more tests now we're doing 3 or 400,000 tests a day and at the peak of the pandemic in april we were doing 20,000 tests a day we should be screaming from the rooftops The huge doubts that there are across the scientific community rarely uttered publicly about these PCR tests, how they pick up all kinds of fragments of viruses, colds Mm. that you used to have, things that do not amount to a fully blown case of coronavirus. And we should be screaming from the rooftops also the fact that the average age of death from COVID is now at or above the average age of longevity across the population as a whole anyway. It's great news that deaths from COVID, people that are hospitalised, have gone down. It's partly because we've got better at treating it. It's more about oxygen rather than invasive ventilators, which can cause their own problems. And if you look at the statistics for death rates across the board, across different years, this is not an unusual year in terms of death rates. It's well within the confidence intervals, as we say as statisticians, of a normal flu year. And as we go into the autumn and respiratory diseases, unfortunately, take more of our elderly people in particular, as they do every year, that's going to be presented, isn't it, as a huge spike in COVID deaths, causing more and more lockdowns, rather than looking at the numbers across years and comparing it with seasonal averages from the same period of previous years. That's an obvious thing to do. You know, even Shaggy can do that. You don't need to be Velma, but that isn't something that a lot of the correspondents who get to the Downing Street press briefings are actually going to do, because that's not a good story. Fear is a good story. They think fear sells. And that's, I think, a lot of what's been driving the kind of coverage that we're seeing and have seen, and what's driving what, in my view, is a bunch of misguided policies.
0: I was going to ask you what what do you think's going on? Are they trapped? So, we have Sadiq Khan, you know, the mayor of London. We know anyone who's been to London; they just London, the capital, is on its knees, Liam. It really is very, very frightening. And there is Sadiq Khan yesterday lending his voice to demanding that, you know, more lockdown for London. If you examine the figures in London, even though the cases have gone up fourfold, and we've just said the cases aren't always positive for COVID, they look like they are. But I'm hearing from Planet Normal listeners who are doctors and nurses in intensive care units in London are confirming the, the hospital admissions and the deaths are really very low. And look, I'm not Professor Gupta, but it looks to me like she's right. And we may be approaching some kind of herd immunity in London, which would be just fantastic news. Yet we've got the mayor demanding these measures which are going to kick his city in the teeth. What's the psychology, Liam?
2: I think it is because, um, you know, he's following the lead from his uh, national uh, Labour leader. Labour have spotted an opportunity. They think Boris is so boxed, having sort of hedged their bets um, in Mm. recent months, they can now see that Boris is so boxed into his kind of lockdown narrative, blowing his tiger horn, as Ivor Cummins would say Mm. from a previous uh, edition of Planet Normal, that he is going to go for a a half-term Lockdown, not because there's any scientific evidence behind it, because it's a kind of political trade off. He's triangulating between people are telling him that we should go for age stratification, shielding, and so called herd immunity on the one hand, and people at SAGE who are saying lockdown, 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 even more, even more, even more. So he's coming up with a sort of middle way. Well, if you try and leap a chasm, you know, you can't do it in two leaps. You know, you have to either pick one side or the other. Uh, And the side I think he should pick and you think he should pick is the side that is promoted in the Great Barrington Declaration. And if you look at that declaration, and incidentally, it's really interesting when we were putting the Planet Normal column together uh, at the end of last Mm. week that Mm. appeared in Monday's paper, we were both, weren't we, looking at the Great Barrington Declaration, looking at the number of signatures that it had, and it was rising by, you know, thousands each hour. And then suddenly I got up on uh, Friday morning and I googled Great Barrington Declaration because I hadn't saved the bookmark, and it wasn't there. You couldn't find it on Google. You couldn't find it in the Google search. All that you could see if you got Great Barrington Declaration was a bunch of articles rubbishing it, saying that these people were practising age-based apartheid, saying that these people were heartless libertarians, etc., etc., etc. So it's not as if it wasn't online, but anybody who heard about it and googled it wouldn't have been able to find it, or it'd have been much, much more difficult. And so I tweeted about it, and lots of people were tweeting about it, saying, "This is really weird. Why is it being kind of, you know, not made conveniently available by the search engine?" And it was really interesting because then by Friday lunchtime, suddenly it came back at the top of my Google search. So that was quite strange. There's, there's been this huge effort to discredit the Great Barrington Declaration, but yeah, and I'm on, I'm on the home page of it now. And it's not just those three epidemiologists. There are 30, 35, 40 other named uh, scientists who launched this thing, co-signatories. And Mm -hmm. then on top of that, you've got now getting on for half a million concerned citizens around the world. You've got almost 10,000 medics and public health scientists, and you've got 25,000 medical practitioners. Now, not all of those will have been checked out, but I know that when you sign the thing, you then get an email asking you to confirm who you actually are. So it's not foolproof, but I think it's certainly indicative that these three epidemiologists who have signed this thing are by no means lone voices. They are by no means isolated.
0: What's so short-sighted though, isn't it, from the politicians of all stripes, apart from a few bold voices like like Chris Green, as you said, who wrote that very good letter this week, is that What's coming down the road isn't just this huge amount of unemployment. I mean, this is your sphere, Liam, but redundancies in the three months, the end of August, 114,000 between March to September, people claiming the out-of-work benefits rose 120% to 2.7 million. And the statistic that jumped out at me, because my kids are in this in this age group, between 18 to 24, now 13.2% of that age group is unemployed. So not only have we got this coming towards the politicians, because they're obsessing still about, you know, how many cases are in Rotherham or Rochdale, but you've got this tsunami of unemployment coming, and they're going to have to account for that soon. Plus all the humanitarian concerns, which we've been raising, haven't we, on the on the podcast. There was actually um, a select committee this week, which called Helen Waitley the Conservative Care Minister to talk to them. And Helen Whaley seemed to be admitting that perhaps it hadn't been such a good idea to not allow relatives to visit their loved ones in care homes. Something which Jeremy Hunt appeared on The World at One and said that they'd actually heard some pretty sad Care home stories, and you know, I nearly pretty sad. Cries, pretty, pretty, yeah. I mean, it's
2: a bit stronger than pretty sad. It's absolutely tragic if he looks at the planet normal inbox. Dozens and dozens of mails we've had about this.
0: Absolutely, and from you know, old people, children going to schools, all these sort of things. And I just feel that that the government isn't really preparing for the next lot of charges. I mean, you know, Labour's now calling their bluff on the science, as it were. Imagine what Labour's going to be doing in January when there are, you know, you've said 4 million unemployed.
2: You know what, Alison? I think the unemployment that's coming will convulse our politics. I think these bubbling up stories of people who can't access their relatives in care homes, of thwarted ambition, of businesses collapsing. In the end, I just don't see that the current trend towards more and more lockdown is politically sustainable. Hello listeners, I'm Chris Hope, interrupting your podcast listening to tell you about another show I know you'll enjoy. It's called The Trump Card and it's a three-part series with a man who understands President Trump better than most, his friend Nigel Farage.
1: Wow, what a job he did, Mr. Nigel Farage. Thank you
2: very much indeed. Mr. Farage has been to the White House more than many world leaders. He then shook me by the hand. He said, thank you, thank you. He said, you will be my friend for life. So who better to tell us what Donald Trump is like when the cameras are off? You're dealing with somebody who, if he thinks you're a friend, he becomes a friend of yours. And as another unpredictable election draws near, what's his Trump card? Search The Trump Card wherever you're listening to this podcast or go to telegraph.co.uk forward slash Trump Card. So on to my favourite part of any Planet Normal podcast. Who is our 21st guest? Who have you stowed away in the hold of the Planet Normal spaceship this week, Alison? To share their down to earth thinking with our listeners.
0: Well, we've got a treat for listeners today, Liam, particularly people over a certain age. We've been wondering about what's going on with the media People chucking things at the telly when they can't believe the, the BBC coverage. And I thought, who better to ask about the BBC coverage of COVID than a veteran presenter, someone who was a huge presence in my childhood and adolescence. I had a feather cut done in nineteen seventy five to emulate her rather lovely feather cut. It's Sue Cook.
2: Oh, Sue Cook. Sue oh, Cook. Wow, you mean you mean Crime Watch Sue Cook? Crime Watch Sukuk. nationwide. Cry- as in, Crime Watch, as in, here we go. <laughs> yeah, you yeah. mean that Sukuk?
0: <laughs> I mean that Sukuk, Yes, absolutely. I mean that Sukuk.
2: And before the lawyers' call, that was Fingerprints by Dekine and John Moore, otherwise known as the Crime Watch theme.
0: A great presence on our screens for thirty Huge. years with Nick uh, Ross with Nick Ross, but she also did Children in Need with Terry Wogan for many years and Nationwide and Call My Bluff. So Sue was a wonderful, slightly reticent, but extremely warm and tenacious presence on our screens. She wasn't ad-
2: only a great presenter, which she was, and she was a massive presenter. You also knew through her work on, on Crime Watch and other work that she done. she was a real journalist, an investigative journalist, a kind of gumshoe. Her and her team would track things down. That's why I think she had such admiration, because she wasn't just a front lady, she was also a proper hack.
0: She certainly was. So I thought she'd be a really good person for Planet Normal to ask what on earth has been going on in the BBC coverage of COVID-19.
1: I have to say it's a bit of a mystery. It really is. Uh, and it it pains me to to find myself criticising it so much. And I can't help thinking there must be something going on, but I don't know what it is. I looked up the Ofcom advice, which they were issued with in May, which was after the lockdown started being released. So I don't know why it was released then, but it was quite prescriptive. Um, I can't remember the actual wording, but it was really warning against undermining any of the the government's line, any of the decisions that the health professionals and the government were making. And I thought in my day, you know, we wouldn't have been issued with any kind of warnings like that. We were independent completely, although we're funded by the taxpayer. Mm. Um, We did what we felt was right and we defended that. I remember even going on strike a couple of times when the government, I think in Thatcher's day, got a bit too prescriptive and we were saying no we're not having any of this i remember picketing outside television center one day
0: yeah i've got that ofcom advice here and it says in in particular we strongly advise you to take particular care when broadcasting, for example, quotes, unverified information about the coronavirus, this may include discussion of un- unverified theories for the causes of the coronavirus and discussion of potential treatments or cures for the coronavirus that do not align with advice of the NHS or other public health authorities. Don't you think that's quite astonishing, Sue?
1: Well, it's, it's little short of censorship, isn't it, mm. actually? Um, if you're not allowed to investigate these things... You're not doing your viewers and listeners any favours, because how are people going to have confidence in what's being told, especially when they're being asked to do such draconian things and to limit their lives in such strong ways now? And if you can't verify the reasons for that, then your belief is going to start to erode, particularly when you see, I think, the gap between the cases, and in inverted commas, that keep going up and up. And these are test results. They're not actual illnesses. They are technically infections, but nobody's really investigated the veracity of these tests and the accuracy of these tests. So it worries me really that the graph is going so high on the actual cases in inverted commas, but the deaths and the hospitalisations, as far as I can see, is still bubbling along the bottom of the graph. So why isn't the BBC asking why the, this gap is getting wider and wider between the perceived infections and the actuality of the figures?
0: Yes, I mean, I've obviously been watching the BBC most days and they seem to be repeating, not reporting. Mm. What would they have done in your day, do you think?
1: We'd have sent people out to some of these laboratories for a start. Um, the PCR test is done in various different laboratories and there's no standardisation. It's, it's, I don't want to get too technical, but apparently it's to do with amplifying the viral mm. sample. And the um, amplification should be, I think, the recommended is 25 to 35 percent. Mm. But there's no actual limit. So some, some labs might be um, amplifying it more. So there's more likelihood of finding the teensiest scrap of virus. I would have thought a very good thing we'd have done in my day would be to Uh, get one person, send out samples to every single one of the labs and see what the results came back as and see if they were all valid because... I wouldn't be surprised if they didn't, Tally. I read about one man who sent a sample sent from a Bramley apple. <laughs> really? Got a positive.
0: No, there are lots of... I can see you've become as obsessed as, as I have as I have with these <laughs> things. Liam's always teasing me, but perhaps it's being a parent as well. You know, with the lack of, of what seems to be actual truth, you do start digging down yourself, trying to find out what's what. Now, you've said that you've stopped listening to the Today programme. What brought that on?
1: Oh well, it just it was getting so stressful every morning. I was just waking up um, and my husband and I were both kind of tense as hell by 10 o'clock. Um <laughs> and it, it's because they didn't seem to let anybody develop a thought. You know it, everything was interrupted a third of the way through the first sentence couple of them are worse than a couple of the others I'm very fond of Justin actually I think he's very good Mm. but there was so much interrupting and also so much rudeness it may be old-fashioned but I think politicians ought to be treating with with a little bit more respect than treating them like insolent children I don't know it it just felt Mm. felt wrong somehow and I felt I wasn't learning anything I felt that the um that it was well not very balanced I just didn't feel it was very balanced.
0: And in terms of the guests as well do you think that's they're drawing from a very sort of particular tribe of people who would seem to agree same old names crop up again and again don't they
1: yes i'm afraid so that we've got um dvish Riddar and neil ferguson and all the, the main mainliners. but you didn't get some very interesting people like carl hennigan Ivor cummins michael levitt michael Yeadon. Mm and Sinitra Gupta. You didn't really hear much of those, Carol Sikora. They seemed to want to bolster up the whole line that it was necessary to go into these very strict um, restrictions.
0: Something that we've explored on Planet Normal is this sense that you were talking about politicians being treated rudely, but it's the fact that the BBC has come to have much more of a sort of leftist attitude and that there's a kind of gotcha approach mm. to the government, which makes sensible discussion really hard when you've got people, interviewers, who are fishing for the next mistake. Do you think there's anything in that?
1: Yes. No, I think you're absolutely right with the, the gotcha attitude. That's that's all it's about. It's not about information gathering anymore. You don't really learn anything. It's all about scoring points. Uh, I'm not a political person at all. Sometimes it's quite nice occasionally for the, your opinions to be to be uh, upheld by what you're hearing and not everything to be um, against what you think. That's why I like listening to talk radio, because I, it's much more in line with, with the kind of questions... I want to ask.
0: You've said your your mother is a hundred and one, yes. And like lots of elderly people, she relies for her news on the BBC. What What do you tell her when you know? I think a lot of elderly people have been very, very totally frightened by the news.
1: Mum does get frightened. I, I speak to her every night on the phone if I don't go and see her, which I did today. And every night she says, oh, have you seen the news tonight? Oh, the cases are going up. It's getting worse. I really don't know. And I have to say, look, mum, these are cases. They're not actual illnesses. They're only people who have tested positive, And a lot more people are getting tested than, you know, so really don't worry so much. It'll be fine. But she also takes the attitude that she's enjoyed seeing us. And we've been seeing her throughout all this because at her age, you don't know how much time she's got left. And it's important that she's not sitting there all by herself. Seeing her days out without any company, so I absolutely defend my right to go and see her whenever I feel like it.
0: So obviously, you're very well known. People, lots of people, must still recognise you. you. Do you get people coming up to you in the street and talking about the media coverage?
1: Yes, a lot. Yes, a lot of my friends and people I don't know all that well, they're all, they're all saying, "What on earth is the matter with the media?" I'm so many people say I'm not watching any of it now. I'm not watching the main news at all. They just close them, pull up the drawbridge and stop looking. Because it is very stressful, isn't it? You feel this terrible contagion is coming your way. It's all so fear-mongery and doom-mongery. You feel threatened, really.
0: It seems to me, what watching the BBC News a lot, that there's just this want of perspective. I think they have started a little bit more recently. Fergus Walsh, Nick Triggle have just started saying, well, we have to bear in mind that, you know, that there were more cases at the beginning, but we didn't we, we didn't have the test for them. But that perspective has come very late. It's been like a kind of, I mean, I think I called it, on that Normal, doom
1: porn. I mean, do you think that's been overdone? What, the doom porn thing? Yes, I think it has been, really. Mm. I don't know whether that's partly because if you make it more dramatic, you know, it's, it's a better story. I'd love to see stories of people's recoveries. I'd like to see stories with people that I had COVID and here I am, I lived, you know, I would love to hear how people, how it was for people. Either, you know, did they go into that second phase where they ended up with breathing difficulties, where they hospitalized, but I'd like to see people who've come out the other side. But we only really see the doom story, the terrible stories and hear about the deaths and the deaths are all people over 82 or 84. And, and I think that's why people can't take it very seriously, why people are still partying in, you know, in colleges, and, because it it isn't terribly believable somehow. The language they use as well, you know, when they talk about things surging and soaring and they say deaths of quadrupled, do you think, well... What does that mean? Was it seven in the first place? It's now twenty-eight, or was it seventy? And it's now seven million. I don't know. Um, I don't. Th- I think that's unforgivable. I'm a bit pedantic. I think I need to know. It was. It was this X, and now it's Y. You know, not it's doubled or quadrupled or it's thirty percent more.
0: When you started work at the BBC in the seventies, could you ever have imagined the BBC acting like this? I, I
1: don't know. It pains me to criticise the BBC because my all my instincts are to be loyal. I was fiercely loyal to the BBC always, and I. I don't want to putting the boot in. It's painful, but I'm sure that we would have done, there would have been a lot more features if there were 10-minute features or 15-minute features, we'd have gone out to those test laboratories and found out exactly what they did and how they put the reagent in and you know how long does it take and who's doing it. We'd have found out who the Public Health England are and who serves on on that and what their brief is. So
0: the BBC has become very keen on diversity, although not necessarily of a diversity that people on planet normal particularly value. They recently got rid of Sue Barker from a question of sport, a job I thought she did with great grace and wit.
1: Mm, she was synonymous with it.
0: She was synonymous with it. Do, do female presenters face age discrimination?
1: I'm sure they do, yes. I think men seem to go on to a much greater age than women. Once you've turned, I don't know, 60 or so, I think we even less than that. Now, I do think women perhaps are more uh, suffer more... With discrimination, older women.
0: Going back to the beginning, you were born Susan Lorraine Thomas, in Ryslip, Rice Middlesex on the thirtieth of March, nineteen forty-nine. Half Welsh, I was delighted to learn. Half Pembrokeshire, that's right. Oh, half Pembrokeshire. I'm Carmarthenshire, so we're we kind of next-door neighbours. Ah. <laughs> and I heard you had an auntie Olwyn who crocheted those mats you put on dressing tables. How's how's your Welsh accent, Sue?
1: Oh, it's not too bad. No, I can I can still quite. Oh. Good. Oh, I still remember God. it. It's a very, <laughs> very distinctive accent, the Pembrokeshire accent, see?
0: It is very... <laughs> and you went to Leicester University to get a degree in psychology. Did you know you wanted to do broadcasting journalism? Was that on the
1: horizon? No. I was the most shy... Thing you could possibly imagine. So the last thing I'd have ever dreamt of was being a broadcaster. My auntie always was appalled. Like, <laughs> who'd think? Who would imagine Susan on the television? <laughs> Susan's on the radio. So nobody thought I'd do anything like that.
0: You, you got so you got a job at the BBC, and over the next thirty years, you presented many programmes for radio and television. And Planet Normal listeners will remember with incredible fondness, I'm sure, Nationwide, which started in 1969, and there will be Michael Barrett and Hugh Scully and Alan Titchmarsh, and who was on in your time?
1: There was Frank Boff and Bob Wellings, and Hugh Scully, John Stapleton, and Sue. And the, Jenny Murray would come in from. Uh, she was working down in Southampton, so she'd. They would have reason, regional presenters coming in and doing a, a week stint. So Jenny and I always got on really well at the desk. But I didn't present to start with. I was making films. It was only when Sue Lawley became pregnant with her second child and they needed another female presenter. And there weren't many females around in the business in those days. So they looked around and their eyes fell on me and they thought, oh, we'll we'll give her a go. So uh, it was all accident. Every time it was a, a lily leaf passing by, which I happened to step on.
0: Well, I think that's that's being very modest. I think you 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 know you really shone out for your a kind of sort of goodness and 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 wonderful sort of sense and so on. You did breakfast time as well, and famously children in need with the late great Sir Terry Wogan. I mean, was it wonderful working with him? It
1: was. It was the highlight of the year. I remember the first year I did it. I was terrified because the thought of seven and a half hours live television with most of it unscripted, and I you know bear in mind I'm still quite shy really you know I didn't I'm not somebody who's a, like Terry who was a wonderful raconteur and could talk for ages I really felt I needed to know exactly what I, my function was what I was there for so I thought you know seven hours of live television is going to kill me but actually it was just such fun and it was for such a good good reason and so worthwhile I, I told myself this is not about you it's about doing something amazing and making a difference to children's lives in this country.
0: And of course, you did Out of Court, which was a a legal programme on BBC Two. Do you think now about the, the legality of, of COVID-19 and the measures and, and so forth.
1: I do. I, I do wish out of court was still on air. I mean, over the last few years, there are loads of things that keep cropping up. I think, oh, I wish out of court was on there. We could do a wonderful campaign about that. It was all about making, showing, you know, bad, bad behaviour by the police, mm-hmm. uh, problems with the prison service, where the law was an ass, which it very often was, where mm-hmm. judges made asses of themselves. Mm-hmm. And I would love to be doing something on the legality of this, you know, the whole civil liberties issue Going on now because I do think it's they're overstepping the mark and I I think there are some legal moves afoot, aren't there? Yes. There are a couple of lawyers who are doing something. So that would be fascinating. But by then maybe it'll be too late.
0: Well we've had Lord Sumption on, and I, I strongly suspect that the legal actions will stretch into the future, particularly and tragically with the people who have missed kind of cancer diagnoses and things like that. Given what you've said to me in this interview What do you think about the BBC licence fee? Do you think, do you think it can go on?
1: Well. Again, I used to defend it to the hilt by saying, you know, that, that it's 37 local radio stations. It's, uh, you know, the, the amount of information you get from the BBC is incredible value for money, much cheaper than Sky or in any of the other subscription services. So it's great value for money. But I'm not entirely sure now whether it's how defensible it is. And I wonder whether its days are numbered because it does so many of the same programmes that everybody else does. The point about the BBC, and I can understand why things weren't changed, but it used to be able to do very niche programmes. So you might get a programme about you know, fishing in outer Mongolia or something. But then you'd think, oh, I don't want to watch that. But it would come on and you'd think, actually, that was much more interesting than I thought it would be. And uh, and even though the maybe it wouldn't get such high viewing figures, it would be covered. It would be something that was covered or, you know, unusual music or unusual arts. Or, But um, now, I think because the pressure became, came on to them, I think in the 80s, really, to justify the license fee by showing that they got lots of Viewers and listeners, they then had to try and go for programs that are going to be more popular. So they ended up doing the cookery and the house makeovers and the you know the 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 programs that all the other outputs were doing. So I don't think they're distinctive enough now.
0: Also paying stars and news presenters vast sums of money which don't chime very well sometimes with the public mood do you think
1: i don't know what happened there i certainly (laughs) missed out on those kind of salaries i can tell you (laughs) yeah it's too much it's silly i mean we used to be we were never paid as well as the independent sector but we didn't mind because we felt very privileged to be working for the bbc they argue that uh, if they didn't pay those salaries the good presenters would go elsewhere i don't think they necessarily would
0: I, I owe you very much, Sue Cook. Not not just your marvellous presence on screens when I was a young woman, but um, the feather cut that I got in 1975 was very closely modelled on the Sue Cook uh, feather cut. Really? Yes.
1: <laughs> I wonder what it looked like.
0: Oh, I think... Better on you than it did on me. To be honest, I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll send you. I'll send you a picture of it so we can compare. We'll get Liam to uh, adjudicate. Yeah. You know how how uh, how rude he is to me. Anyway, it's been absolute delight having you on Planet Normal, and thank you, Sue Cook.
1: <laughs> Keep on tracking. Take care. Good to talk.
2: God, you know I always liked Sue Cook. Of any any teenage boy in the eighties, really likes Sue Cook for obvious reasons, but she's such a good journalist. And some of the things she said there about the investigations that the BBC and other broadcasters should be doing, of course, she's completely right.
0: She said, Liam, didn't she, it's not about information gathering at all and also something that chimes with us on Planet Normal. Sometimes it's nice to hear your own opinions upheld. And I was very taken by the fact that she's really dug down. She's retired now, she's 71, but she's still that questing for the truth.
2: Sharp as attack.
0: Caring about the detail and more in sorrow than in anger, I think, finding the BBC has really not conducted itself as the journalistic organisation that, that she once belonged to.
2: Yeah, I think her words on the licence fee will certainly trouble the headline writers, if you like, a person of such integrity and of such sort of resonance with the public saying that the licence fee is no longer... Defendable, despite, you know, a lifetime of loyalty to the BBC. I thought that was really, really interesting.
0: Now, Mr Halligan, bit of a dark horse. Talking about media coverage, I read that you were in the final four for the Prime Minister's press spokesman. Can we confirm or deny that?
2: <laughs> <laughs> I can confirm it. I mean, they were never going to give me the job. They always knew who they wanted for the job, and I wish her luck. But when you've been a journalist for 20, 25 years, as I have, and um, they ask you to come in and tell you what they think they should be doing, then you go in and tell them what you think they should be doing. So I did. Did you
0: have a bit of a rehearsal at the podium? People firing questions at uh, you?
2: Yeah, they put me up on the podium and, and see how I look pretending to be CJ out of the West Wing. <laughs> but it was never going to happen. If you're a columnist like me who always deals in policy and economics and so on, it's part of the job when you're writing for a paper like The Telegraph or The FT, where I used to write, or The Economist, where I used to write. It's part of the job to be in close touch with the politicians, not just agreeing with them. And I'm a trademark contrarian. That's I why say that again. we started Planet Normal together, isn't it? Because we're trademark contrarians, the pair of us, even though we're from different necks of the woods journalistically. And I think that stems back to the sort of background that we have in common. Again, different but very, very similar in terms of the families that we sprung from and our early life stories. So it was flattering to be asked and I think it's pretty fair to say that I told them what I thought in no uncertain terms and then as I walked out of Downing Street, I sat in a cafe and wrote a column in The Sun telling Boris that he had to get back his mojo.
0: Can I just say... But if anyone could have made a silk purse out of the sow's ear of the present government handling of COVID, it would have been my wonderful co-pilot. But I think all listeners to Planet Normal will be hugely relieved that we retain our captain and we haven't lost him to the murky world of spin. So let's have some reader emails. So many of you are mailing us at planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Please keep them coming. Liam and I absolutely love all your emails. We do reply to as many as we can. We also feature a few emails in our Planet Normal column, which appears in the Telegraph and online every Monday. Here's one that caught my eye. This is from Jasper, Liam. This is really interesting. He brings us a perspective from, from India. He says that India is about to take the number one slot in the world's largest number of COVID cases. There are going to be many lurid headlines, but not in India. Why? Because the whole COVID narrative here in India is all about recoveries and low death rates. Recovery data is prioritised above deaths, as is the extremely low rate of deaths. Life and survival rates become a matter of pride. A lot of pride is taken in this. Pride and hope, good for morale. And we can't afford to lock down. This was a disaster here for the daily wages who are out of money and food in a single week. Rather than seeing one big lockdown, we're coming out of it in stages, not stop, start, like Britain, which strikes me as disastrous for everyone, psychologically the equivalent of being dumped every so often and unexpectedly by one's girlfriend. Of course, people in India remain circumspect, but the overall story is one of hope and the expectation of an end. This is key. We all see that there will be an end with Diwali as a milestone. In the UK, it's hard, according to the government, to see any end. And this strikes me as the most morale-sapping part of this whole fiasco. Well said, Jasper.
2: This is from Paul. Planet Normal will be delighted to know the world has finally gone mad. We've been saying that for months, Paul. Paul talks about the bright red postbox outside his village near Henley-on-Thames that's been removed because a resident claimed it was a Covid risk. (laughs) So now to post a letter, he's got to don his mask, go inside a small shop that contains the post office, try to queue two metres apart, which he says is impossible, sharing germs with the other customers. Mad or what?
0: Now, we've been overwhelmed, Liam, haven't we, by reactions to a very moving email from Robert about his wife, Josephine, who is in a care home suffering from dementia, and he hasn't able to see her. So we're keeping in close contact with Robert. And Robert wrote to us this week and said he'd been overwhelmed by the very kind response. I believe Josephine is getting the best care possible in the nursing home where she resides. My complaint is not about the home, but about the regime they operate under set by this government who apply a broad brush without regard to the humanity that is crying out to be recognised. Just as we were about to resume distance visits outside, four more staff tested positive. I understand they are asymptomatic. As a result, the home is shut down to visitors in any form for a further 28 days. There are thousands in the same boat as me. The only two outcomes I can see at the moment is either death or we go bust, whichever comes first. You and Liam, together with your listeners, are in the right place to drive home this message. Keep on the good work. I'm with you in spirit, Robert.
2: You know, I know the this email correspondence that you've been having with Robert. It's. I, I hope you don't mind me sharing with listeners. It's become really extensive, and I know you're quite heavily engaged now in terms of trying to help Robert personally. Mm. And that's the kind of journalist that you are. And I say that with pride as your as your co-pilot. And what we're going to do, aren't we, on Planet Norman, we're going to stick with mm. Robert and Josephine and we're going to give listeners updates of what's actually happening as he tries to touch and be with the love of his life. And I'll stop now because last time we were reading out emails from Robert, we both ended up crying, didn't we? Here's Kate. I've arranged a weekly listen to your podcast with my technophobic parents who, like dinosaurs, have barely got beyond email. In this increasingly isolating existence, they enjoy an opportunity for lively discussion, plenty of caffeine and a lot of healthy laughter. You guys have no idea how much of a wonderful tonic that you are. All right then, Kate, that's great. You can do planet normal with tea and coffee, but it's better with a gin and tonic.
0: (laughs) This is one for you, Halligan. This is from Dominic. Dear Bank of England, please, can you explain where the £1,473 billion you used to buy UK government debt this afternoon came from?
2: <laughs> I love that. That's absolutely right. I mean, God, yeah. read my column most Sundays in The Telegraph when I rail against QE. And finally from me, Alison, we must thank several readers, actually, who have had printed-up T-shirts uh... with the Planet Normal slogan... Orthogonal to the Orthodoxy, coined by Sinatra Gupta, taken up by us, the rallying cry. Thank you for those T-shirts. We will collect them from the Telegraph when we finally get to go there.
0: Especially to Rob, who has designed the beautiful Orthogonal to the Orthodoxy T-shirt. And it may be that we can go into production if there's enthusiasm amongst Planet Normal listeners. will um, I can hardly say it. And I didn't, I'm not quite sure what it means, but it's a really cool T-shirt. <laughs>
2: And finally from me, the great Scooby debate. Uh, Here we go. These are two reviews that we got at the same time. Very thoughtful programming on Planet Normal, says Richard. But the running joke on Scooby-Doo, it's getting a bit tiresome and detracts from your sound journalism. Mm. But then we had Trevor weighing in. OK, Scoob, she says. <laughs> Who would have thought in a world gone mad we'd have to rely on Velma and Shaggy to restore some sanity? So a thumbs up and a Scooby snack for us. <laughs> for our ridiculous obsession, Alison, with a 1970s cartoon character.
0: <laughs> I'm very glad to see that we are actually guilty of sound journalism and that this is only <laughs> broken up
2: by the sort of the, the the crass Scooby references. So that's it for our 21st voyage to Planet Normal. Strap yourself in for re-entry as we endure once again the madness of Planet Earth. However you listen to Planet Normal, tea or coffee, walking the dog in your favourite chair, stay with us, tell your friends, Listen to our 20 Strongback catalogue if this is your first voyage and keep the faith until next Thursday. We'll be back for another Blast Off.
0: Remember that every Thursday at 11am, co-pilot Halligan and I chat to fellow Planet Normal citizens via the Telegraph website. You just go to telegraph.co.uk forward slash community, click on the article at the top of the page and leave a comment in the comments section between 11am and 12 noon. We'll reply to them. Please come and join us.
2: And any questions about podcasts, how to listen, where to find the good ones, check out the article explaining all things podcast on the Telegraph website and you'll find the link to that in the show notes to this episode.
0: And if you're enjoying Planet Normal, why not leave us a five-star rating and a short review on Apple Podcasts? We've got some absolutely lovely ones. If you don't know how to do that, again, drop us an email and we'll tell you.
2: So as Planet Normal fades out of sight once more, an Earth hose interview, thanks to our brilliant producers, Reese Gunter, Louisa Wells, and Elliot Lampett, hooray! Hooray! And our editor, Theo Leludis, hooray! And until our next voyage, it's goodbye from me, and it's goodbye from him.